Would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 with me this morning? Ephesians chapter 2. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to know more about how he could have eternal life. And uh, Jesus asked him about whether or not he obeyed the commandments and he replied that he had. And Jesus said, well, then sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the Gospel writer says that the rich young ruler walked away from that place saddened because he wasn't willing to give that up. And when he left, the disciples were perplexed because if God's blessing were on any person, it would be on a person like him. He was rich, sign of God's blessing. He was still young. He was a ruler in some way. It seems as if God is blessing him. He's obeying all these commands. You know what the disciples asked Jesus? If he can't be saved, Jesus, then who can? Who can? And Jesus replied, do you remember his reply? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. His point was that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum of earthly blessing. The way that a person receives eternal life is through the power of God. And that is something that has to work in every single person's life. That is, when you came to Christ, it's not because you were better than someone else or more equipped to, to handle the things of God or the sayings of God. You came to Christ simply by God's grace and through His power. And I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were looking at Ephesians chapter 1 that if you are not convinced about God's choice of you, God's election, then you don't understand human depravity. Human depravity, according to Dr. McCune, is my, my systematic professor, is that sin has affected our whole being and that every human is capable of the worst types of sin. That's human depravity. It's affected all of us. And in this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, particularly in the first part, we will stare human depravity in the face, square in the face. And if, if we only looked at verses 1 through 3, we would have to come away with the idea that there is no possible means of salvation within ourselves to correct the problem that we have gotten ourselves into. We would have to walk away like the disciples after reading just verses 1-3. through three. Who then can be saved if all of us are, are deeply depraved? Then who can be saved, Lord? And so as we go through this passage this morning... We're going to go all the way through verse 10. I want you to think about this question. What part did I have in my own salvation? What part did I have in my own salvation? Alright, let's read through this passage and then we'll, uh, we'll break it down uh, verse by verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Word of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Just like in verses 3-14 through of chapter 1, I said that was how many sentences in the Greek language? Do you remember? It was one. And then verses 15 to 23, how many sentences was that? One sentence. And that's the same thing that's true in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. So basically, in the first section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he has these three main sections. Verse, chapter 1, verse 3 to 2, 10 is only three total sentences. He's making three points. First, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, God saves us for the purpose of us glorifying Him. It it highlights His majesty. Then, Paul prays that we would grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. Verses 15-23. to And then, here we're going to see that we are alive in Christ because of God's grace. Here's the way that God glorifies Himself. He makes us alive in Christ. And it happens by His grace. So, In order to um, understand this passage, I think it would be best for us to break it down in three ways. First, we need to see what God did to us when He made us alive in Christ. Verses 1-7. through What God did to us when He made us alive in Christ. Then, we need to to see um, how God made us alive. How God made us alive in Christ. Verses 8-9. and Then third, we need to see why God made us alive in verse 10. And the reason I, uh, I, I developed each of these points this way, I believe they're drawn from the text, is because the main point of the text is that we are alive in Christ. And the reason I know that is because the main verb in this passage, okay, if you have one sentence, you should have one main clause and, or, or one main, uh, one main uh, clause, and, and in that clause should be the main verb. And, in that, and what I'm suggesting is that in verse 5, God made us alive is that main verb. So, what He did in making us alive, how He did it, and why He did it. Let's start with what He did in making us alive. In order to understand that, we need to see first what we were in verses 1-3. through Notice verse 1, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins." Okay, he's, not talking about spiritual de- or he's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. Notice the first... Two words, and you. Or as another translation puts it, as for you. Paul is talking to the Ephesian church who is made up mostly of Gentiles. And so I believe what he's 
saying here is he's directing this to the Gentiles. You, as for you Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so we could say, well, maybe that means that the Jews were exempt from that. But notice verse 3. Notice the, the pronoun that he uses here. Among them we, speaking of Jews, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We were just like you Gentiles. And then look at verse 5 because I want you to see that this death, this spiritual death, is not just for Gentiles. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. That is, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So Paul is talking about not just Gentiles, but Jews as well. This is not an ethnic problem. That is, spiritual death is not an ethnic problem. It's a human problem, isn't it? It's a problem for all of us as humans. And so what is this spiritual death? The way that Paul explains it in verse 1 is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Notice the word dead. He doesn't say you were sick in your trespasses and sins. You were wounded. You needed a little help. No, you were dead. And the same thing he says in verse 5. What we should see here is that a dead person can't affect change in himself, right? A dead person can't affect change in himself. If, he were, if we were truly dead, as Paul is saying here in verse 1 and 5, then what we need to understand from this passage is that whatever change takes place in our lives has to come from outside of us. Because dead means death. It means dead. Okay? Now what would happen if I died and after... We had a viewing, or you had a viewing, my lifeless body at the funeral home. One of my kids stuck around and decided to, to sneak up on me and try to scare me in the casket. How would I respond to that? Right? I wouldn't. Or what if he slapped me in the face, he or she slapped me in the face? How would I respond as a dead person? Right? I have no response. Or, or if he, he or she yelled at me, and said, come on and play with me. Nothing's going to happen because dead is dead. Now, the implication that we sometimes think when we think of death is that death implies that there was former life. Okay, so if we all were spiritually dead, that's what Paul's saying, then we must have had spiritual life at some time before this. That's not what Paul is saying. And I hope you understand how analogies work that when analogies are used, we need to make the point of comparison where the author is making the point of comparison. Paul's not saying the fact that you were dead means that you were formerly alive. He's simply making the comparison that death means inability. It means you can't do anything. You don't have any desire to do anything because you're dead. All right, and the way that I illustrate this is, um, you know, if I were sitting at a table with my brother... And we're eating together, and I said to him, you are a pig. He could say, I am not a pig. I'm not pink, and I don't have a curly tail. How could you say that I'm a pig? What would I say to him? That's not what I'm talking about. Hey, I'm talking about the way that you eat. The point of comparison is that you eat like a pig. I'm not saying that you are, you know, biologically a pig. Okay, so we only should take the point of comparison where the author has intended it, and that's what Paul is doing. He's saying you are spiritually, here's the idea, lifeless. 
without life, without ability. What does this look like? Well, verses 2 and 3 tell us. Spiritual death looks like this. Verse 2, "...in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience." Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay, spiritual death means that we were continually defying God's law and we were continually falling short of God's demand in our words, in our thoughts, and in our actions. In every area of our lives, we were defying God and falling short of His glory, right? That's death. That is spiritual death. We were walking according to the course of this world. That is the the sinful actions of the world. We were following after that. The sinful world system. We were following after, verse 2 says, Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And we know that ultimately he's not the, the, the king of the earth, right? He only has limited authority over the world, both in the amount of time that He's going to reign in His position, but also in the extent. He can't do anything He wants, can He? Alright, Job. He had to go get permission from God in order to do what He wanted. And so God has Satan on a leash, and so we can call Him the prince of the power of the air, but ultimately we recognize that it's only a limited authority, that God is ultimately determining what happens, and that Satan's only going to be there for a time, and then he's going to be removed away and that's when Jesus takes over in a very clear way. But, but as dead spiritual beings, we were following after Satan. That's the point that Paul is making. And verse 3 says that we followed our own sinful flesh. So we have these three evil things in life. The world, the devil, and the flesh that John talks about. We were following after our own desires. And so we were in a very desperate state being spiritually dead. And here's the consequence of spiritual death in verse 3. Look at the end. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were the objects of God's wrath, weren't we? We deserved His just punishment against us because of our sin. And there's an important phrase in this verse that we need to understand, and that is, we were by nature. You didn't fall into disfavor with God as you got older, right? As you started to do bad things, then God, you, you more and more fell out of disfavor with God. That's not the way it was. Rather, you were by nature children of wrath. And we could, we could put in any person's name in all of human history, Say the same thing. You were by nature objects of God's wrath. Because we were born with a sinful disposition. We didn't become sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we are sinners. We were born in sin. And as a result, we defied God. And I hope you recognize that God would have been completely just to send you and me to hell for all of eternity. God would have been completely just to do that because we had defied the holy God of the universe. All of that is true. We were spiritually dead. 
we followed the wrong leader. We loved to enjoy the sinful pleasures of our own flesh. And we were destined for an eternity under the wrath of God. But notice the next two words in verse 4. But God. But God. Can you think of a greater phrase in all the Bible? But God. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50.20 Lord said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 The psalmist talks about the mockers who say, where is your God? I don't see Him helping you out. You know what the psalmist's response is in verse 3? But God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115. Paul in Antioch says that they took Jesus down from the cross. Acts 13.29 They took Him down from the cross and they buried Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. At the most helpless times in human history, it's God who steps up and intervenes on our behalf. He intervenes to show His great power and He did the same thing in your salvation. You were destined for an eternity in hell. You deserved God's wrath because of your rebellion against Him. But God, but God stepped in. And what did He do? Verses 4-7, through He made us alive. We were spiritually dead, verses 1-3, through but now we are alive in Christ, verses 4-7. through We are alive in Christ. And what we should first see in these verses is that God affected the change. Remember, if we are dead and dead is dead, then we as a dead person can't affect change spiritually, can we? The change that happens in our life spiritually has to come from outside of us. And here's where God comes into the picture. He affects the change. Notice verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, here's the main verb, He made us alive together with Christ. God affected the change. Why did He do that? Verse 4 tells us, because of His mercy. Salvation is so that God can receive all the glory, chapter 1. So that we would live to the praise of His glorious grace. So that all the world would be able to see what a great God there is in the heavens. It's for His glory, but it's also by His grace. Verse 4. God does it for His, for his own benefit. That is, so that He can exalt His bountiful mercy, so that He can put His mercy on display before all the world to see, so that you and all the world will be able to see what a great God He is because you didn't deserve to come to God. It was because of His mercy. We would expect for God to put on display our condemnation. And again, God would have been completely just in doing so. But instead, God came. And for the, to exalt the riches of His grace, verse 7 says, He made us alive. And here's something very important that we must understand. That God's mercy does not come upon you and me because God saw something beautiful in us. Remember what our former state was. 
We were depraved, verses 1-3. through We were dead. God didn't look at us as a dead spiritual being. He didn't look at us as an enemy of His and say, wow, what a cute little thing. I'd love to come and bring them close to me. No, His mercy came upon us because of His love. He, we didn't deserve it. The fact that God loved us resulted in God's mercy. That is, God chose us. He chose to have mercy on us and then He displayed His mercy. Not because there was anything good in us. Verse 5 tells us that God affected the change when we were helpless, even when we were dead. Okay, Just in case we missed the point in verses 1-3 through that we were dead, Paul brings it back up. He says, even when we were dead, God made us alive. And that's what grace is. It is... It is something that God does on our behalf that we don't deserve. Notice the purpose of this, the, the riches of God's mercy in verses 6 and 7. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's a way for God to put the riches of His mercy on display. He seats us with Christ. He puts us into a different position. We were dead. We were enemies. We were walking according to the course of this world, following Satan, our own flesh. But God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul's talking here about union with Christ. You understand that you are not currently seated with God, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You understand that? That He's speaking about something that is still future for us, but we are so united to Christ, that is, that there is no way that we can be removed from this union that we have with Him. And so Paul can speak of it in a past tense. We have been united with Christ. He can speak of it that way because it's so sure that it will happen. That's our position. We were enemies of God, but God made us part of His family. We were alienated from God, but God united us with Christ. And part of the purpose in this goes back to chapter 1. You see this in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. So that in, in the ages to come, in the years and and the, and the periods of time ahead of us, God will continually show the riches of His grace when He points people back to the time that He brought us out of condemnation. He says, look what I did to them. They deserved My wrath and I pulled them out. This is the surpassing riches of God's grace. His purpose to live for the praise of His glory. That while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet spiritually dead, Romans 5.8 says Christ died for us. While we were opposed to God, Christ died for us. So, that's what happened in salvation. God made us alive in Christ. That's the main point. Now, Paul is going to answer the question, how did God make us alive? Verses 8 and 9. How did God do this? And the answer is, by grace through faith. 
by grace through faith. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Okay, we could say you have been made alive in Christ. You have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. There are five truths about grace that we can draw out from this passage. Five truths about grace. But before I get into those, let me remind you what grace is. Grace is undeserved, unearned, and unwanted favor. Doesn't that make sense? If we are spiritually dead, we don't deserve it. And we don't earn it, we're dead. We can't do anything. We can't do anything to affect change. And we don't even want it because we're dead. Do you see? That's grace. Think of it this way. If I had any modicum of spiritual life or godliness within me, then who would get the glory for my spiritual life? Okay, If I was, let's say, just mostly dead, I was just wounded or injured, and I came to have spiritual life, who would get the credit? I would be sitting here saying, because of the, the, the small amount of spiritual life, I followed that light that was within me and I got saved. And now as a result, all the glory can go to me. Yeah, some can go to God, I guess, but, but most of the glory goes to me. But if you understand human depravity, none of the glory can go to you, can it? Because you were spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I was dead. And the only change that can be affected is from outside of me. Believers, that is grace. Undeserved, unmerited, and unwanted favor. The reason that we need grace is because we are dead. No one could be justified unless God freely poured out His grace apart from our works. So let me just give you five Truths about grace. Number one, grace is necessary. Right? I already mentioned this. We were dead. We have to have grace. We can't be saved apart from grace. Number two, grace is unearned. We see this in verse uh, in verse nine. I'm sorry, verse uh, verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Not as a result of works. Grace is unearned. Paul says clearly it's not a result of works. In other words, these are standing opposed to each other. Someone could say they could get saved by works or they could get saved by grace, but they don't work together. It's one or the other. And obviously we can't be saved by works. And the point is that salvation is all of God or it's all of us. And we know that we can't save ourselves. We can't do anything. And so it's not of works so that no one can boast. Number three, grace is free. Grace is free. At the end of verse 8 it says, it is the gift of God. It's a gift that God gives to us. Number four, grace is for God's glory. It's for God's glory. At the end of verse 9 it says, so that no one may boast. The way that we could, we could uh, read this is that no one can boast in their salvation, can we? We can't boast in our salvation. The only boast that we have is in the cross and what Christ did for us, not in what we did. 
And so all the glory gets deflected from us and goes to God. And then number five, grace levels the playing field. When we come to Christ, we don't come to Christ leaps and bounds a better uh, leaps and bounds ahead of someone else who came to Christ. We all came come on the same level, all on the basis of grace. That's what Matthew 20 is talking about when Jesus hires the various workers in the parable, or he talks about the man who hires the workers in the parable. He says, you know, some came early in the day and they had to work through the heat of the day and work the longest hours. And when they came to, uh, they, they actually were paid last, but there were some other people who were hired throughout the day, even up until the 11th hour, right before quitting time. They came, were hired, and the master gave them an amount of money. And when these people who had come at the first part of the day came to get their money, they expected that they were going to get much more than these people who came at the end of the day. Makes sense, right? But the Master says, hey, we agreed on this rate. And you can't complain because I'm actually showing you a measure of grace hiring you at all in a time of uh, an agricultural society when work was at a premium and people would line up outside of uh, you know, a farm and, and just wait for farmers to ask for help. It would be a measure of grace for the Master to give them that help. And Jesus' point was, when we come to Christ, okay, the point of comparison, again, is not because they worked, they get to Christ, but the point of comparison is, I can give grace however I please. And if you came to Christ way back here and served God your whole life, that doesn't make you any better than the person, like the man who died, the thief on the cross. We needed the same amount of grace because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Master can give out that grace however He pleases. And so that's why I say grace makes the, level, makes the playing field level, doesn't it? We all come on the same level. So it is by grace that we are made alive in Christ. And then verse 9 says, says that it is through faith. Um, I'm sorry, the first part of verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is the instrumentality. I, I don't like to refer to this as the means of salvation, okay, but rather the instrumentality. We were simply instruments in God's hands to, to bring us to Christ, that our faith was. Because if salvation is by grace, then here's what we have to, we have to come up with, and that is that, that faith is not a work. Right? Because I said that either salvation is by grace or it's by works. But what about our faith? Doesn't it sound like our faith is a work? Like we're earning something from God? How can I, our salvation be by faith? Because it sounds like faith is a work. Turn to Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3. Because Paul addresses this very same point. Romans chapter 3. And he uses the illustration of Abraham. Romans 3.28. Here's his basic foundational statement. Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Apart from works of the law. So here's what he's doing. He's putting those two things in contrast. He is saved by faith apart from works. So, 
How does, that doesn't seem to make sense. It seems like faith is a work. But here's where Paul explains that to us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He explains that faith is not a work. What then shall we say, verse 1? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, then notice he has something to boast about. Paul says, not before God. Look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Okay, there's the faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. It's an earning. It's a wage. Verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes, that is, expresses faith in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, faith is not a work. If faith were a work, then that person would have something to boast in. But here's what Paul's saying, not before God. When we express our faith in Jesus Christ and come to salvation... We have nothing to boast about before God. Because that faith is not a work. And here's where he draws the line of comparison with Abraham. Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. When did Abraham believe God? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Before. When he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Genesis 15.3 And so here's what God's saying. When He expressed faith, that wasn't a work. That was me crediting to His account. Because see, if it were a work, what would I have to do? I would have to give to Him what was due to Him, His earnings. But faith is not a work. Faith is just an expression of what God has already done in us. So our salvation, turn back to Ephesians 2, is the instrumentality or the faith that we have in salvation is the instrumentality that God makes us that uses to make us alive in Christ. So, what did God do? He made us alive. How did he do it? He did it by grace. It was all of God and it was through faith. Why would God do something like this? We've already given some indication of that. Obviously, we've seen some in, in chapter 1. But specifically in verse 10, we will see that He did it for good works. That we would respond with good works. Look at verse 10 with me. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We all recognize that we were created by God, right? God is the Creator. We didn't make up God in our minds. God... God existed long before we existed, and so we were created by Him. And so in that sense, God owns us, doesn't He? Because He is our Creator. This is my Father's world. Right? He owns us. And so we are indebted to Him because He is our Creator. And that is why disobedience and unbelief are so heinous before God. That's why God can justly condemn millions and billions of people to an eternal hell. Why? Because He already owns them. He made them all, right? It would be like the clay deciding to reshape itself or not conform to what the potter wanted to shape him into. 
And yet that's exactly what we did. We followed the course of this world, verse 2, and the prince of the power of the air and the lust of our own flesh. Even though we were owned by God, He created us, He owned us. And now, what has God done to us through the blood of Jesus Christ? Not only does He own us, but He bought us back from the slavery that we were engaged in with the world. And so now God doubly owns us. He created us and He bought us with the blood of His Son. At an infinite price, He paid for our ransom. And so because we are doubly owned by God, we must give our lives in worship to Him that we exist for His glory. God doesn't exist for ours. We exist to magnify God. God doesn't exist to magnify us. If we ever come to a place where we are magnifying ourselves to a place above God, God doesn't need us. Do you see? Because we don't exist for God. Uh, uh, God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God. It is for His glory. Specifically, the way that we express God's glory or display God's glory is by being His, notice the phrase there in verse 10, His workmanship, His work of art, His project. He's doubly earned the right to own us and to shape us and to use us as He pleases. Notice that that our salvation results in what? Good works. You see that in verse 10? For good works. This is why He saved us, created us in Christ Jesus. For good works. It's not the other way around. Do you notice that? We didn't do good works in order to be saved. Because God saved us, we were created for good works. That's the order, the logical order. So your works did not contribute to your own salvation. They're a result of it. Let me leave you with two points of application today from this passage. Two points of application. Number one, Christian, recognize again or afresh the great work that God has done to you. Recognize the great work that God has done to you. How do you view your salvation? Do you view it as a right? I deserve to be saved because I did. Is it a right? Or is it a privilege? I deserve to be condemned. And yet, God stepped in and gave me life. This is salvation, folks. We didn't deserve anything but God's wrath. You know, when you met the person who is now your spouse, when you met that person for the first time, you didn't love them as much as you would later love them, right? Maybe you had an interest in them. Maybe you were attracted to them because they were funny or sweet or something. And so what did you do? You arranged your schedule so that you could spend time with them and so that you could be with them more and more often, so that you could know them better. And you know what happened? That as you got to know them better, you got to love them more, didn't you? And you loved them more than you did the first time that you met, right? That's the way that it works. To the point where you eventually love them so much that you're willing to commit your life fully to them, to to agree with them that you would give the rest of your days to be with them. That's 
how your love progressed, isn't it? It, it made sense. It turned from an attraction to a conscious choice. But I hope you understand that that's not the way God came to love us. God didn't look at us and say, wow, what an attractive little creature I've made. And now if I can only get to know them more, then I will love them more. Because in knowing us more, He would only have loved us less because of our sin. Did you see today from the text of Scripture what kind of a putrid, disgusting, miserable existence that you and I were before God that had nothing within us to attract us to God? God never thought, you know, the more I get to know this person, the more I loved Him. No. His anger was aroused at our sin and we were His enemies. We were actively opposed to God. But God's love came in an undeserved way. And it's a love that's not based on what we had done. It's not based on what we would have done or what we still will do. It's based on His own free choice. God said, I will choose to love that person who is unlovely. I will choose to help that person who is helpless. That was us in salvation. And when He does, people don't look at us and say, wow, what a great job you did in changing your life around. We are amazed at your ability. The only thing they can do is look to God and say, what an amazing God to save that wretch of a sinner. Someone who was His enemy. A person who was dead in his sins and make Him a part of God's family. And that's why, both now and for the ages to come, God can put us on display in our salvation before the angels and the demons even. And they will see this and marvel at God's grace. Why would God do something like that to someone who didn't deserve it? Who instead deserved the opposite. We are God's workmanship and we have no reason to boast. All the credit goes to the craftsman and none of it goes to the little object. You know, we were much like Lazarus when he was dead in the tomb. Jesus didn't throw in a walker or a cane and say, help yourself out because you have some ability to do that. No gimmick or tool could be used to help Him because He was dead. No gimmick or tool can be used to help you when you are spiritually dead. God has to do something outside of you. He has to give you life before you can obey that call of His. That's what faith is. It's responding to the call. And when God finally gives you life in an instant, you respond in faith. You don't sense that until you go back to the Scriptures and recognize what you were. You don't sense that when you're coming to Christ, do you? It feels like it was all of you. This is the glory of God. This is the grace that comes from God that He imparts life to those who are spiritually dead. That's what regeneration is. Recognize again the great work that God has done for you, to you, and praise Him for His grace. Number two, a right understanding of grace will propel us to proper evangelism. A right understanding of grace will propel us to proper evangelism. 
In order for a person to be saved, they have to recognize their deadness. They need to be made alive. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I didn't come to heal the healthy, I came to heal the sick. And his sarcastic point there is that you Pharisees don't see yourself as helpless and so I can't help you. Okay? The point is that you won't come to Christ until God gives the light that you need to come. And right now, as long as you see yourself as healthy, you're not going to come to me. But, but we have to ask, well, if they have to see themselves as dead, well, doesn't that suggest that, that they have to do something? And we already said dead people can't do anything. But here's our responsibility as Christians. We are like Jesus on the outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And we call out to unbelievers, one and all, as we come into relationship with them, repent and believe or come forth like Jesus said to Lazarus. We can't make them obey that command. We can't help them along. We can't grab their hand and and bring them out. All we can do is command them what God has told us to command them. Repent and believe. And who's going to do that? Who's going to respond to that call of ours? And the answer is, those whom God has chosen. So what has to happen in the life of every single person is that God has to grant them life. And when we say repent and believe in an instant, they will be able to respond because God has already given them life. So, we do this by helping this person see their hostility toward God. A person has to recognize that they are a sinner before they can be in, see their need for a Savior, right? And so we help them to see their hostility toward God. Not in a crass way, you know, you are dying and going to hell. And if you don't do it, not like that. Okay, but in a humble way, because we know we were on the same path. We were dead because of our sin. Include yourself in the conversation. Do it in a tactful way. In a way that would be helpful for them to see their desperate state. And you know, when God allows them to see that fully, that's the time when spiritual life is imparted to them and they will respond in faith. You can be sure of it. Because all those whom God has chosen, those whom He predestined, He will call effectually. They will come to Christ. And all those whom He calls, He will justify. And those whom He justifies, He will glorify. It will happen. And so our job is just get the message out. Tell people, one and all, listen, God tells you to turn from your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. You need to do that. The wonder of God's grace. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and you lived according to the course of this world. You followed after Satan. You were in bondage to your own sin and flesh and you were deservedly, by nature, objects of God's wrath, even as the rest. And such we all were. But believer, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that He would call us children of God, and such we are. 1 John 3.1 Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at Your grace 
We're thankful for Your mercy that You showed to us. And we were guilty, miserable sinners deserving of Your wrath. Instead of You pouring out the fullest measure of Your wrath upon us because of our sin, You chose us and You poured that wrath out upon Your greatest possession, Your greatest asset, Jesus Christ. And all that wrath was taken upon Him at the cross. And He, being the infinite Son, served our sentence in our place so that our debt could be paid in full. And so we are reminded afresh of the great mercy and grace that You've shown to us in salvation. And we can't help but praise You for Your glorious grace We can't help but think about ways in which we can become more aligned with Your will. Find out where Your desires are and do them. Because we are Your workmanship. We're created for good works, for Your glory. We often turn away. We often fall back into our sin. Sometimes we take pleasure in turning from You. We need Your grace continually remind us of what You've done. And so I'm thankful for passages like this to help point us to where our minds ought to be, forever remembering the great grace that we have received through our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we never boast in our own salvation or in the faith that we express, but recognize that all that we have done is only a response to what You had already done to our lifeless spiritual persons. Give us the grace to live for You. And may we be able to share and spread this hope with other people who are also objects of Your wrath, but we would love to be, see them be objects of Your eternal mercy. Lord, help us to think of specific people to whom we can speak. May we never tire or be shameful of sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. We need Your help individually. We need Your help as a church. So we pray that You would continually pour out Your grace upon us. May we recognize the great grace that You've shown to us and respond in proper obedience and service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.